Since early summer, WPKN News has had a keen eye on all races taking place in our listening area, both in Connecticut and on Long Island. Good evening. I'm News Director John Iannuzzi. The news department here at WPKN appreciates the effort put forth this election night by Richard Hill and his crew, Robert Johnson, Scott Harris, and everyone assisting on and off the air this evening. Now, the importance of these midterm elections cannot be overstated. And the station news department has worked diligently to take a closer look at the contested races, some potentially much closer than others. In Fairfield County, where WPKN's studios reside, 4th District Congressman incumbent Democrat Jim Himes of Greenwich is being challenged by Republican former first select woman of Darianne, Jamie Stevenson. Himes is looking to secure an eighth term in office. His opponent, who won a Republican primary back in August, is also endorsed by the Connecticut Independent Party. Now, in debates and on the campaign trail, the two candidates did their best to paint themselves as common sense and independent thinkers. Stevenson and Himes aligned on some issues when asked about the cost of higher education. Both said, for instance, community colleges and apprenticeship programs should receive more attention. Asked about health care costs, both said there needed to be more emphasis on preventative medicine in the U.S. health care system. However, Himes and Stevenson diverged on whether the minimum age to be eligible for Medicare should be lowered, with Himes saying it should and Stevenson saying it should not. We'll talk more about that later in this newscast. On inflation, Stevenson took a shot at the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden signed into law back in August. She called it a climate change bill in another name. Now, ultimately, Politico and Connecticut Insider in the 11th hour had Himes leading by a comfortable margin. And WPKN News would consider it a very large upset should Stevenson pull off a win tonight. Meanwhile, just north and to the west of Bridgeport, from Newtown to Kent, with Waterbury and Danbury in between, we're talking about towns from counties like New Haven County, Fairfield County, Litchfield County, even Hartford County. The 5th Congressional District has become easily the most contested congressional race in the state, if not all of New England. Incumbent Johanna Hayes has served the district since 2018. She's something of a national figure, having once won the National Teacher of the Year honors and appeared on the TV talk show circuit. Hayes is the first African-American woman and African-American Democrat to represent Connecticut in Congress. Now, that last one, I did think initially that I reported incorrectly when I broadcast it back in 2016. Mind-boggling, but true. Johanna Hayes is the first African-American woman and first African-American Democrat to represent our state in the House of Representatives. Hayes is 49 years old. She grew up in the Berkeley Heights housing project in Waterbury, a focal point of many of her speeches. She's married to a police detective from Waterbury, and she has four children. The 5th Congressional District was once represented by Connecticut's current junior senator, Chris Murphy. Before Murphy, once powerful Republican Nancy Johnson served as representative from what is now the 5th District from 1983 all the way to 2007. This election cycle, the 5th District, is a statistical dead heat, according to polls over the last few months. The Republican challenger is George Logan 
Worth noting, this is the first time the district has two major party candidates of color for voters to choose between. Logan has a master's degree in mechanical engineering. He's a former state senator from Brookfield, an energy company executive, and he's married and lives in Meriden with his wife, a nurse, and has two children who are college-aged. Logan's bio reads that George Logan is a family man, engineer, community leader, and a small business owner. His grandparents left Jamaica for Guatemala during the Great Depression, and like so many other American families, George's parents left Guatemala to come to America to grow a family and build a better life. Now, the Hayes campaign has garnered a reputation in local media circles as being inaccessible. WPKN did attempt several times to extend an invite to the incumbent, but we did not get a response. The Waterbury Democratic Party even tried to assist to no avail. An article in the New Haven Register, however, on November 4th, at least proved that our scenario was not a unique one. Congresswoman Hayes raised eyebrows last week when she skipped an event where the full Democratic slate, including Governor Ned Lamont and senior Senator Dick Blumenthal, who were both up for re-election, gathered to rally supporters. The New Haven Register wrote that schedules are tight and any candidate can miss a seemingly important event, but last week was not a one-time thing for Hayes. She does not live by the political playbook, and she doesn't always show up at the right place and shake the right hands and ask how the right kids are doing and say the right things. Johanna Hayes does not have a close relationship with the media. Now, Logan is trying to leverage social media. He seems to have a daily selfie with a high school team, mom at the grocery store, or dad at the gas station. We're talking retail politics. At a League of Women Voters debate last month, the two opponents clashed on the key issues, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade and codifying abortion rights rules. Johanna Hayes. I would absolutely vote yes if there was a federal vote to codify a woman's right to choose. I have already taken that vote in the 116th and the 117th Congress. I am a co-sponsor of the legislation. I have been vocally supportive of women's reproductive health and women's reproductive rights, of access to contraception, of the idea that the decision is between a woman and her doctor full stop. There is no room for government intervention. There is no room for me. So all of the nuances that accompany this conversation are just distractions. My job in the Congress is to make federal law. And from the federal government standpoint, there is no place in women's reproductive choice. Challenger George Logan. I support a woman's right to choose. I support Connecticut state law codifying a woman's right to choose. And as a member of Congress, I would do just that, just as I had done it when I was in the state Senate. The overturning of Roe v. Wade does not change anything in Connecticut because we have codified a woman's right to choose. The U.S. Supreme Court, we have our three branches of government, they decided that the decision regarding a woman's right to choose and the abortion issue should be left up to the states. I would comply with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, and I would not uh, vote in favor of uh, codifying uh, Roe v. Wade at the federal level. I think it's a um, decision has been made by the U.S. Supreme Court. I will do everything in my power 
to make sure that a woman's right to choose is in no way uh, infringed from what we have here uh, in Connecticut state law. Hayes took exception with this position both on the campaign trail and at the League of Women Voters Forum. I don't think Mr. Logan understands what choice means. It doesn't mean that the federal government or the state government can decide. It means that the individual decides. So the idea that he would not vote to support codifying Roe versus Wade means that he thinks that individual states should make the decision for the woman. That is not choice. Choice means that the person decides for themselves in consultation with their medical professionals, their doctors, their families, what decision they are going to make for themselves, not the state. Logan sought to brand Hayes as extreme on reproductive rights. My opponent does not believe in parental notification if a 14 or 15 or 16-year-old child is seeking an abortion. We have differences. But in terms of supporting a woman's right to choose, in terms of supporting Connecticut state law, codifying a woman's right to choose, I will do everything in my power to make sure that nothing occurs in the federal government, at the federal level, that infringes upon Connecticut state law codifying a woman's right to choose. Hayes put the issue to rest, stating simply she supports a woman's right to choose, full stop. Ultimately, many in the Democratic Party are concerned, according to a Reuters article yesterday, that too little focus by candidates on the left has been on the economy, which is far and away the key issue to voters polled. A third of responders picked the economy as the country's biggest problem, a much larger share than the roughly one in 10 who picked crime and about one in 20 who said the biggest problem was the end of national abortion rights. Both incumbent Hayes and challenger Logan sought to come off strong on the national trend of the slowing of the economy and inflation. Well, you've now heard from both uh, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes and challenger George Logan. Again, thank you to the League of Women Voters for this audio from the 5th Congressional District race debate. When this race first started to take shape, WPKN began following closely the positions taken by both candidates over the last six months. Neither have really moved from their original campaign bullet points. Now we find out what the voters had to say. Polls are officially closed in Connecticut. I'm John Iannuzzi, News Director, WPKN News. As part of WPKN's election coverage, this is Hazel Kahn reporting from Long Island. I'm with Ian Wilder, Executive Director of Long Island Housing Services, who will be talking to our listeners about two important races on Long Island, starting with a congressional race in the state's First Congressional District, CD1, which includes the eastern two-thirds of Suffolk County, stretching from the wealthy Hamptons to middle-class suburban and working-class towns and rural communities. Suffolk County legislator Bridget Fleming, a Democrat and former prosecutor from Sag Harbor, was running against Republican Nick Lakota of Amityville, a Navy veteran and chief of staff to the Suffolk County legislature. So over to you, Ian. Good morning. I live in the first district. It is very, very diverse. Economically, we have from farm workers to the wealthy We have beaches, we have farms, we have suburban communities, but the first district shares with uh, the rest of 
Long Island, New York, and even the country, similar housing problem, a dearth of housing available in terms of numbers for just basic people's needs, much less housing at appropriate income levels, affordable housing for people who are not the wealthy. And that creates all kinds of problems in the first district. It's the reason why traffic is jammed up on the South Fork and what they call the trade parade, because the people who work in communities can't afford to live there. There's a great deal to be done. I would hope that whoever is elected in the first district follows the lead of the Biden administration because they have been very aggressive in tackling both the need for housing and affordable housing. I've looked at the two major party candidates, and I will say there has not been much of an in-depth discussion of housing, though uh, the words are on the lips regularly of Long Islanders, people talking about their children leaving because they can't find an affordable place to live. I looked both at the Republican Lota's paperwork and statements and the Democrat Fleming. Fleming mentions housing a little bit more, but does not go into in-depth policy proposals. Not only do we have this long tail need, we also have a changing environment. There's been the discussion about the failure of the whole national appraisal scheme and how it's racially based and and house prices can literally be $500,000 difference depending on whose pictures are on the mantle. The Biden administration took quick action, came up with a plan 90 days and started moving on it. But I think that's something that Congress should be backing. There's also, we're going to more computer-based algorithms in terms of making decisions and bringing people out of decision-making, which can be a problem because those algorithms are ultimately programmed by people and can have the same problems with it as the people making decisions. We have what's called fintech, which is financing of real estate online. We also see new problems in large investors sweeping in and buying first-time homebuyer houses and turning them into rental houses, which is reducing our stock even more. So we do need action on a national level. We also need the federal government to take better action. HUD provides a great deal of financing in our communities, but as part of that financing, since the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, there's a requirement that communities desegregate the phrases of affirmatively further fair housing. Many communities have not been doing that at the level they should, and they've been receiving the financing for decades. HUD literally needs more staff. They've been starved of staff over the last couple of decades in order to enforce that, to make sure that our federal tax dollars are used well. Another big problem with our federal tax dollars, and these are all things that we haven't heard our candidates discussing, and they are potential solutions to our problems. Everybody knows about the Housing Choice Voucher Program, commonly called Section 8. But on the island and across the country, the problem is that it's a market-based program. People are given a voucher, and there are other voucher programs, and they run the same problem. The market fails. People come in with the vouchers, and the landlords are refusing to take the vouchers, which means that there are tax dollars sitting there to be used to help people get housing, and they are unable to do that. There are two paths to help fix that. One is New York State has a source of income law, which has helped. 
uh, but we need more resources to enforce it so that those vouchers can be used. And we need a federal law because it's better if things are standardized across the larger area. If there are property owners that are multi-state, it's better for them if they have a single law to obey. The other thing is before World War II, the federal government was in the business of actually building affordable housing, and you can do it so it doesn't have to be the brutalist structures of the 1960s. And that housing was integrated. It was for both people who were poor and for the middle class. Honestly, we are at such a disaster level that we need large-scale infrastructure housing being built. And the federal government's the only one with the resources to get that done. They need to re-enter a market that they had originally done well but pulled out of and back the segregation of coming out of World War II. So there's a great deal for our Congress people to do in terms of housing. I wish we heard more policy discussions. Unfortunately, when I get mailings, they're all negative. They only hammer on a couple of issues. And some of those issues are very important, including women's rights of bodily autonomy. But where somebody is able to live and they're having the choice to live where they want, they are not stymied by discrimination, affects lives in so many ways. It affects health outcomes, the ability to get food. It affects so many things. Now we're going to talk about the gubernatorial race in New York State. The candidates for governor are incumbent Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul and three-time Republican CD1 representative Lee Zeldin in an increasingly close race in a blue state that Democrats are blaming on New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, saying he has overhyped the crime issue. Back to you, Ian. Whoever wins, I would hope that they continue the policies of Hochul. She has aggressively attack the problem of housing. She tried to deal with a problem that's longstanding, our zoning. Zoning was created as a a tool in order to segregate, and that problem has never been fixed and keeps us from building affordable housing. It keeps private homeowners from being able to build accessory dwellings on their property that meet health and safety requirements. We need to do something about the local zoning because it's continually causing problems and stymieing us. So it's a problem at two levels, supply in general, and it's keeping certain segments of the market from accessing the housing they want based on meaningless demographics. Can you talk now about some of the other issues that we've talked There was just a study that came out that found states with liberal policies, which New York has put in that column, have better health outcomes. People live longer. So I would hope that the protections that have been put in place for our fellow New Yorkers continue, whether it's protections from our streets being flooded with guns, our fellow citizens being able to make decisions in terms of bodily autonomy, if the federal government's not protecting it. There obviously are economic problems at the moment, though most of the economic studies have shown a good percentage of that is just raw profit taking rather than costs to the manufacturers. And we have a problem in this country with small numbers of companies controlling entire markets. Don't know that there's much the state can do about that, unfortunately, but the state can release resources 
and make it easier for people to use resources to ease some of that inflationary cost burden on people, making sure that the government is not roadblocked to people getting resources that are actually available to them. Our gerrymandered school districts often make it difficult for children to get in. We have mandatory education, but there's no requirement on the school districts that a child that comes to a district that that district has to make sure the child is placed anywhere. Our school districts are, are no longer doing us a favor. They also cost us a great deal because we have a number of districts with administrators basically providing the same services over and over again. Mm-hmm. Also, because of the power of the local districts, Long Island does not have an an arts high school or central science high school, the way New York City does, despite the wealth of our communities, how large our population is. There are many things that the state can come in and try and improve. And the state has to a certain extent done that with, with the tax caps and pushing districts, for instance, to share resources. But I, I think we need to go further at looking at the existing structures, and some of them, I believe, come out of systemic racism, the dividing of the district lines that really don't serve our communities. New York is a coastline state. Climate change is a huge problem. It also affects our ability to farm because it changes weather patterns. The Northeast has now become a great deal wetter. The state has taken actions, but it can take more actions in terms of pushing what the state does and what businesses in the state do. In terms of crime, we've actually had a lot of false information. Our cash bail system basically punished poor people and people of color who were often unfairly caught up in the system. And all bail is is about holding somebody to make sure that they'll come to court. The studies have already shown that reducing our cash bail system has had no effect in people showing up for court and has not had any effect in the amount of crime. Bail destroys families. It destroys economics. If people are stuck in a jail cell, they can't work. They can't care for their families. In terms of immigration, we need a real policy to deal with people fairly. People spouse market solutions, but they're often the same people who want to limit immigration, which is not a market solution. I mean, out in Riverhead, where I live, which it, which had been known for its Polish community, I've seen a, a great influx of Ukrainians coming in prior to the current war. We also see an increase people who practice the Muslim faith. There was a push for a while for law enforcement to get involved with immigration matters and become an extension of ICE. And that created a fear of law enforcement in immigrant communities, even for people who came in documented. There is a wide variety of needs for the ability for people in terms of immigration and in terms of visiting. I mean, the eastern part of Long Island, especially the South Fork, the wealthy come in and out of the country. And so they need people to help maintain the services they need. Uh, People also want to come here because of the agribusiness in order to uh, pick various things. Riverhead has become a center of brewing for beer, also hard liquors and, and, and hard cider. And of course, there's the shopping along 58. So we've become very much a destination where people want to come into the country and to the area that we're at, and that they also need people to provide 
those services, whether it's healthcare, domestic care, or taking care of estates or the farmlands or the tourist businesses. And now we also have the cannabis industry. Well, the cannabis industry I include in, in agriculture. Uh, it seems that a lot of it is changing over. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Bianchi, who I believe was the former assemblyman, who I think is in his 80s, who was an orchard grower for pretty much all his life, is changing over his properties to that. So some some of the same properties are still being used for growing. Some of the major greenhouses are being used. So it's really not a change. The other thing that we're seeing a great deal of on the farmlands is solar being put in, the changing energy structure. Thank you very much, Ian. Ian Wilder, Executive Director of Long Island Housing Services, As part of WPKN's election coverage, this is Hazel Kahn, reporting from Long Island.